electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, new attacks and a pop in oil prices. Turmoil in the Middle East taking a turn, twisting in the wind while the Biden administration refused to overturn an Apple watch ban. Holy Intel! The chipmaker's epic comeback cranking up. A big buy? Signal for stocks? Well, it's a curious trend among one major group of investors. Plus, a loss that may live in infamy. The Detroit Pistons on the brink of an historic losing streak is the controversial owner deserves some of the blame. And from superhero to super zero, Hollywood's comic book gravy train may have finally run dry. All that and the rollout of the first of our big four predictions for next year over the hour. So belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. All of that and more ahead on a live. And we are live. Last call. But first up today, the Santa Claus rally rages on as the stock market's heart grows two sizes too big. Wall Street kicking off the final week of the year with more gains. The Dow grabbed 159 points. The S&P 500 closing within a whisker of its own record. It is now less than 1% from its all Time high. A NASDAQ also posting another strong day. It is up eight weeks in a row. And listen to this little mini RBI. According to Bespoke, this is the 25th time we've had an eight week win streak in the NASDAQ since it was born in 1971. So basically, this is pretty rare. It happens maybe just on average about every two years or so. So now we are looking at nine in a row if we end this week higher. And there's a pretty good chance that could happen. Why do we say that? Well, the Santa Claus rally, which is technically, I guess, defined as the last five trading days of the year and the first two trading days of the new year, it's got a strong historical record for whatever reason. Since 1969, the S&P 500 has averaged a gain of 1.3% over those seven trading days. That, according to our friends at the Stock Traders Almanac. So with three trading days left this year, can the market's win streak carry into next year? And either way, what should you be buying right now with these record or near record highs? Let's talk about it with Solus Alternative Asset Management Chief Strategist Dan Greenhouse. Dan, there's you and me and about eight other people working this week, so we appreciate you coming on. Listen, I, I know you're probably not one of these people that are just so into these historical stats, Santa Claus rally, whatever, but there is no denying that the stock market has a lot of momentum right now for whatever reason. Yeah, listen, it's always important to understand seasonality and historical patterns. And, and listen, no one is basing a trading strategy around them. No, there's no hedge fund who says we're going to do X uh, and sell Y at, at Z time. But it is informative. It is helpful because seasonality is a thing, as we've seen these last few months. And certainly the Santa Claus period, again, as you noted, the last five days of the year and the first two of the next year, uh, thanks to our friends uh, Jeff Hirsch at the, at the Stock Traders Almanac. 
there's something there, and it hasn't been arbitraged away, no matter how much uh, grad school wants to convince me that it will be. Yeah, you're exactly right. Let's hope that, like, you know, Citadel, Ken Griffin's not walking into Citadel's trading floor like it's a Santa Claus rally, buy everything, and then we'll sell it three days into January. I'm willing to bet that he's not on the Citadel trading floor today, but. I'm willing to make that bet as well. In fact, I think we agree on that. But to your point, seasonality is important. There's a lot of momentum. Is, in your opinion, esteemed opinion, is most of this momentum because of this Fed pivot idea? Is it liquidity perhaps coming from China or Japan or other areas, money coming out of bonds? What is behind this? It's probably a combination of everything, as as is usually the case. But I think the, the Fed pivot, while obviously an important moment in time, and anyone that's involved in markets on a daily basis is is not going to dismiss uh, that 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 um, that shift by the Federal Reserve, so to speak. But at the same time, it's not that the market, the stock market, is rallying per se because the Fed's going to cut five times or something. And I think that's a bit of confusion, or mm-hmm. at least in my opinion, a bit of confusion among uh, market participants. It's that the odds of that so-called soft landing are probably higher today than was the case a month ago, three months ago, six months ago. And if the Fed is also not going to lean against that, you get the, the two tailwinds, so to speak, the better economic performance, which comes with comes with it better earnings growth, and the fact that the Fed appears, at least for now, to not try to stamp that out. That is really what's ultimately going to drive stock prices, not they're going to cut four times instead of five times or something along those lines, at least, in, again, in my opinion. Well, also, speaking of historical trends, I am told, Dan, that there is some kind of a major election next year. I, I believe that's to be the case. And listen, I, I, I made this joke before. Uh, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, but. Uh, it, <laughs> all, the all important but. Someone get the uh, tinfoil hat ready. Here we go. What do you got? Uh, listen, it's 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 uh, our friend Joe Labornia on, on Twitter was making this point the other day that the Fed has never begun an easing cycle into a into a, a presidential election year. And and next year appears to be the what will be uh, assuming Joe's correct the the first instance of them doing that. I think uh, again just making the argument that I don't know that I ascribe to it. The idea is that the Fed's probably going to feel pressure internal mm-hmm. subconsciously to begin cutting as quickly as possible. I don't know that I agree with that, but that yeah. would be the argument that they would begin cutting sooner rather than later for fear of looking like they're front loading those cuts immediately into the election and and thus being labeled partisan or political. Yeah, and I would, you know what, I don't think it's crazy to also think that, and without, you know, high interest rates, and we've covered this extensively on this show and I've covered it on this network, high interest rates could destroy the green and clean energy agenda because they are the enemy of gigantic capital-intensive energy projects, i.e. a billion-dollar offshore wind farm, looks really attractive and money-making at 2% money, but at 8% money, it's not unless you jack up rates on the rate, you know, the utilities and the households, and then everybody gets all jumpy. I don't think it's totally crazy to say that the Fed, maybe not being political, Dan, but certainly sees this negative impact that higher rates are having on a lot of things that a lot of people are putting a lot of money on. I don't see it as a human being how you would be able to simply ignore that. That's probably right. And again, I don't want to ascribe political motives to the Federal Reserve. And, and Jay Powell has done nothing in his career. No. And I would even say just, it's economic, not political. Yeah. But, but what I was going to say is I don't think Jay Powell has done anything in his career to convince me that he is favoring the, 
the renewable energy industry or something along those lines. Now, again, that, that might be the case. And, and you're exactly right. Renewable energy, uh, whatever one thinks about uh, the, the necessity of, of it as, a, as, a, as a, a go forward energy source, requires a tremendous amount of investment. And, and like any unprofitable tech stock, if you will, a lot of those earnings are further down the road. And the attractiveness of those investments in a higher interest rate environment is less today as a result of those rates. So I, I certainly think they're aware of that. But again, it's taking a step back from this, the cover that the Fed is 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 using, not <laughs> excuse me, not incorrectly, is that inflation has largely come down to target it. We just saw with the PCE the other day that on a six-month basis, you're basically at two percent. And so it's not as if mm -hmm. they're making this transition, if you will, with with uh, inflation at three or four percent per se on a three or six month annualized basis. You are effectively back to target, which gives them the ability and the cover to justify what they're doing. Yeah, I don't think it's political. If I was the Fed chair and someone said, hey, you realize, you know, your inflation slowing. You've, you've done a lot of what you said you're going to do. But by the way, you're also going to implode about a couple hundred billion dollars in plan investments in the energy we need. It would affect the way that I thought, I don't think you have to be one team or the other to think that way. Dan, we're glad you're on our team. Dan Greenhouse, thank you. My pleasure, sir. All right. All right, let's go into the market and take a look at your studs and duds du jour, the big winner of the day, Intel, up 5%. We'll get more on that later on this hour with Christina Partsenevelis. The big decliner, Norwegian Cruise Lines, not about 3%, but take it easy. Stocks had a massive run this year, a little pullback probably expected. All right. Let's get a check on the futures as well. Again, we finished up today. We have an eight-week win streak. If we finish up this week, it'll be nine-week win streak. And the NASDAQ 100 is in the longest win streak or is on pace for its best year, I should say, since 1999. Wow. Anyway, we are live and just getting started here on Last Call. And up next, Iran backed militants wreaking new havoc in the Red Sea. But... There is another Mideast attack that investors should really pay attention to. Plus, a just-breaking story involving one of Apple's top executives, Sam Altman, and artificial intrigue. We'll break it down for you. Coming up. Imagine you're on a John Deere mower with a smooth ride, intuitive controls, and attachments for every season. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the headlines you and Wall Street will be talking about tomorrow morning. And first up, according to the research site The Information, AI company Anthropic is projecting at a minimum $850 million in annualized revenue by the end of next year. Why do you care? Because just three months ago, the OpenAI rival Anthropic told some investors it expected that figure to be about $500 million by the end of next year. It is unclear what prompted the higher projection, but the point is Anthropic's revenue projection jumped by 50% in just a matter of a couple of months. Wow. 
Next up, some bad news for all the Amazon Prime Video users out there. You know who you are. Come January 29th, the platform will officially begin showing ads unless you are willing to, yep, pay more for the ad-free tier. Customers can pay an additional $2.99 a month to avoid the ads. Amazon says the move will allow them to, quote, continue investing in compelling content, unquote. How many have raised their rates in just the last couple of months? The move was announced earlier this year, but now the date has been set. Finally, Pizza Hut franchises in California are laying off all their delivery drivers. The move comes ahead of a new state law that would raise the minimum wage to $20 an hour. The decision will result in more than 1,200 job cuts. According to regulatory filings, it will begin in February. Pizza Hut, not the only chain cutting drivers. Southern California Pizza Company, a Pizza Hut franchisee, also announced plans to lay off with an 800 salaried delivery drivers. The law of good intentions. All right. Meantime, tensions in the Red Sea are dialing up further this evening. In a new post on X, U.S. Central Command says in part that U.S. military assets, quote, shot down 12 one-way attack drones, three anti-ship ballistic missiles, and two land attack cruise missiles in the southern Red Sea that were fired by the Houthis over a 10-hour period, end quote. Houthis, of course, are backed by Iran. It all comes the U.S. is taking action against another Iran-backed militia at the same time. That group is known as Kataib Hezbollah, and it injured three U.S. service members during a drone attack at the Erbil Air Force Base in northern Iraq yesterday. In response, President Biden ordered retaliatory strikes on three locations used by the group. They were all in Iraq. Now, Iraq condemned both the American and the militant group in a statement from the prime minister's office, saying both attacks, quote, infringe upon Iraq's sovereignty and are deemed unacceptable under any circumstances. The escalating tensions in the Middle East sending oil prices up nearly 3%. That is the biggest daily jump in two weeks. And while the random attacks on ships in the Red Sea are a dangerous situation, right now they are probably unlikely to hit oil supplies. And if they do, it wouldn't be that much, maybe a ship or two. But Iraq is a different story. Iraq is the second biggest producer in OPEC at a little over more than 4 million barrels a day. So what is the risk here? Joining us now is RBC Capital Markets Head of Global Commodity Strategy, Halima Croft, also, of course, a CNBC contributor. That sent, I want to focus on Iraq in a second, Halima, but that CENTCOM tweet really caught our eye because we thought maybe an, an errant missile here, a stray missile there. The U.S. military is saying that, that, that the Houthi attacks may be a lot bigger and potentially more dangerous than at least I thought. I mean, Brian, this has been a source of escalating concern in Washington. Remember, we spoke a couple weeks ago, and U.S. officials were deeply concerned about the rising attacks on commercial vessels, military vessels in the Red Sea. And on Friday, you had Pentagon officials out saying that Iran was deeply involved in planning these attacks. They provide intelligence to the Houthis on what ships to target. They provide the cruise missiles and drone technology to the Houthis as well. And so this is a clear indication that this war in Gaza is spreading to other fronts. And there's no path to de-escalation at this stage. Is there any path, Halima, if we get some kind of a truce or a ceasefire in Gaza, both sides cool it, they call it off. Is it possible if that settles down that Iran 
and it and its fighters that it's backing financially will also back off. I mean, that's obviously the working thesis is if we do get some type of lasting ceasefire in Gaza, that these attacks should cool down. Now, we've heard other theories that the Iranians are actually concerned that if Gaza gets a ceasefire, the Israelis may turn their attention to Iran, as Iran has been the principal sponsor of all of these groups. And so are the Iranians potentially looking to keep this conflict going forward in order to potentially tie the Israelis down. Now, we simply don't know the Iranian calculations at this stage, and it certainly does not look like we're on the verge of a ceasefire yet, despite the ongoing talks in Egypt. Yeah, and talk to us about this Iraq situation. I'm not, I'm not familiar with Kataib, Hezbollah. It's probably some splinter group. But when I hear that U.S. military servicemen are being injured, one of them critically, and that we are ordering retaliatory strikes. And by the way, I know two people, Halima, in New Jersey, they're Army reservists. One of them is in his mid-40s with a number of kids. They're being called up to Iraq and Syria. It's part of a regular rotation, but he, I don't think, realized he's going into a hot zone in Syria and northern Iraq as a, as a mid-40s guy. This seems to be ramping up, and Iraq is not the most stable nation in the world. And he got 4 no, million barrels a day. Brian, we have had a series of attacks on U.S. personnel in Iraq and in Syria and retaliatory responses from the U.S. What would be deeply concerning, obviously, is we start to see American casualties, and that would bring the prospect of deeper American involvement into this conflict. And again, we have deployed thousands of troops to the region. We've deployed ships to the region to try to basically convince the Iranians it's not in their interest to target U.S. personnel, but this continues. And so the question is, do we start to see escalations on multiple fronts? Again, it's not just what's happening in the Red Sea. It's what's happening in Iraq. There are attacks in Syria. And we're closely watching the situation on the Israel-Lebanon border as well. So this is potentially a multi-front issue right now. It it does. It definitely feels like that. And uh, great work to the uh, servicemen and women on the USS Laboon, which is the destroyer that fired the missiles that were able to neutralize some of the other Houthi missiles that were in the air as well. Scary stuff. Eileen McCroft, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Still ahead. You can call it a comeback. Intel's resurgence hitting the accelerator will tell you why. Plus, breaking developments around one of Apple's top executives, Sam Altman, and the AI arms race. Stick around. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, welcome back. It has been a very good year for chip stocks and their investors. And now Intel has reached its highest level in over a year. As the company announced the new $25 billion chip investment from Israel. Christina Partsonavos joining us now with more. Christina, what is driving the surge at Intel? It can't just be this Israel news because that was just today and the stock's been hot beforehand. 
Well, actually, the Israel news, the $25 billion was announced back in June. They've already begun construction on the facility in Israel. But some of the driver, a lot of the driver has to do with the fact that it's getting a big subsidy, uh, roughly $3.2 billion from Israel's government. And the other interesting thing, Brian, is that that $3 billion you're seeing on your screen is not its highest award. The German government actually promised $10 billion in subsidies. And we're still also waiting to see what the U.S. government will offer with the CHIPS Act. But Intel has promised to invest up to $100 billion. Yes, $100 billion here in the U.S. building the world's largest chip-making complex. These are promises thus far. But all of this is with the aim of reestablishing Intel's manufacturing chip leadership. And so according to TrendForce, Intel has finally cracked the top 10 foundries by revenue the size of Q3. The top three spots are held by Taiwan Semi, Samsung, and Global Foundries. Intel is all the way at the bottom of the list at number nine. But you have to think of Intel right now as two separate companies. That's how Pat Gelsinger, the CEO, wants you to think of it. As a chip designer, which we know it competes with AMD and NVIDIA and really does well with CPUs. And then as a chip manufacturer that aims to compete with Taiwan Semi, Global Foundries, and Samsung. And that foundry business, that second part, is growing. It actually generated roughly $311 million in revenue in Q3 which isn't that much in the grand scheme of things, but it's actually up 300% year over year. And Intel eventually promises to break out its foundry financials separately in Q2 of next year. No plans yet. I asked him this very recently about spinning off that company. He said not just yet. Uh, But the major thing, though, that is convincing investors, because the company has had a long history of manufacturing delays, but it says or management says they're on track to deliver new chip promise, processing promises. They're, so they're on track to do that. And that's why you're seeing the stock that soared, what, over 90% year to date, up almost 50% just in the last three months. That's what you're seeing on your screen right now, beating out NVIDIA, the AI darling, up about 18% during the same time frame, which shows investors are starting to believe this company can turn itself around. Processy promises, very easy for you to say, Christina Parts and Avalos. But no, our, our, I think our, I fumbled it. No, but, yeah, uh, that, that was that Intel. Was, that was the joke. That that was the joke, by the way. Um, Christina, oh. are people saying that this rise in Intel is sustainable? Because I'm not going to knock on Intel, but I'm going to knock on Intel, which is that you know we've had sort of these head fakes before, and Intel is disappointed. Yeah, you don't want to knock on it, and everyone knocks on it. I've really seen a, a change in tone, at least from the analyst world, in terms of all the notes that I've read in the research and the commentary. It seems like more companies, like, for example, Mizuho, turning bullish, increasing their price target not too long ago. The same thing with Stacey Rasgon's, um at Bernstein. And the argument is threefold. One, yes, you have the, uh, the foundry business we just talked about. They signed four customers this year, so they'll have four big customers. Boeing, the U.S. government, is, are, are part of those customers. Uh, the second thing is the PC bottom. We started to see or hear more about this from AMD as well as Qualcomm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the worst has passed us. And then the, sec- uh, the third point would be inferencing on servers. So the second part of large yeah. language models, and that's where Intel can compete. They're going to be coming out with a new uh, chip next year, the Gaudi 3, which can compete better with all of uh, NVIDIA's chips and AMD. So it's putting it up there. It still has room to grow, still has room to prove itself, but it's definitely improved and on that path to sustainability. The path of the processes promises. 
parts of Evelis. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, it was a horrible sentence structure on my part. No, it's a pick the pack of <laughs> pickled peppers. We all do it. Thank you, Christina. All right. Yeah, tongue twisters. All on. right. In the meantime, we got a bonus TNT for you tonight, and it could be a big one in the AI arms race. Bloomberg reporting that Apple's outgoing iPhone design chief, his name is Tang Tan, is joining forces with Apple's famed former chief design officer, Johnny Ive, and OpenAI's Sam Altman. Tan will start work at Ive's firm, which is called Love First, or Love From, rather, on an AI hardware project focusing on devices that integrate the latest capabilities in AI technology. What those may be, we have no idea. For more on the implications and this story, let's bring in Deepwater Asset Managing partner, Gene Munster. Gene, we know this is just out now. You haven't had a lot of time to dive into it, so we appreciate it. Any wild, (laughs) why not? It's the end of the year. Wild speculation on what these new AI hardware projects might be? Maybe a a new phone, something bigger? Well, I don't think it's a new phone because Johnny, I've left Apple because he was bored of doing phones. So he left in 2019. They ended the relationship with Apple as a consultant, his from love firm at the end of 2022. So he's a free agent here. He doesn't want to do another iPhone. And there's been kind of rumors of this since back in September. And what is clear is that Sam Altman and OpenAI want to build an AI device. The best guess at this point, AI device is really bringing uh, the digital and physical worlds together. It's probably something like this humane pin that came out in November. So this really doesn't what have much that? of a screen. It's a pin that you wear that listens to what's going on around you and can either uh, just uh, talk to you if you want information about different things, or you can also put your hand out and it can kind of put like a hologram on your hand. It's pretty clumsy right now, but I think uh, the big takeaway here is this, is that Sam Altman wants to build an AI device. Right now, Johnny Ive has not joined Sam Altman. Uh, The headlines may be a little bit confusing on this. Uh, OpenAI is hiring uh, Love Firm as your setup uh, talked about. So I just want to be clear, Johnny Ives is right now in this just to, this is a great customer. They have Airbnb, they have Ferrari. This is another great customer for them to work with. But but the, but, it, but it's and the story is very confusing. And we're going to buy guys, by the way, this is bagged that Apple Watch story. Sorry, Gene, this is too interesting. We're going to do an Apple Watch okay. story, put it in the open. I'm officially killing this story right here live on TV. Um, I want to go further into this because they're hiring the former Apple design chief, but that's not right. Johnny Ive. He was the former Apple design chief. He was replaced by Tang Tan. And this story is that Tang Tan is now going to join Johnny Ive. So really you have arguably the two most powerful design people at Apple, apparently, reportedly, joining forces on this mysterious Sam Altman OpenAI thing. That's like a huge, it's like the lead designer of GM and Ford joined Elon Musk on something. This is no worry. This is worth uh, moving on from the watch. I agree with that. Uh, think of this as <laughs> magnets that are starting to get into each other's gravitational pull. They're not there yet. But if this was just a customer, just a customer, if OpenAI was just a customer for From Love, then Johnny wouldn't be hiring this talent. I think he's now picked off about 20 ex Apple uh, people. So they want to make a run of this. I mean, uh, if you take it to its most logical conclusion, most logical conclusion is nothing happens. But, you know, there's a one in three chance that this emerges something and this becomes uh, basically Johnny Ives' new company. And I would just put it this way. He's done it. Johnny's done it. He loves Apple, too. I mean, he's not in this to kill Apple. 
uh, he wants to change the world. He's one of those people that has a luxury uh, and the resources to do that. And so this is going to be something big. It's going to take years to come together. The iPhone and iPad took five, 10 years to put together. So yeah. that's an important piece. But I think this is uh, safe to say is that this, uh, we're just at the beginning of this. And I, I just one one last thought here, Brian. I don't think this is like an iPhone killer. I see this as like yet another device and Apple's going to have to respond in, in kind to whatever Johnny does with OpenAI. Yeah, you do wonder if this could ultimately hurt Apple, the two firms. Maybe we don't, you know, we all, listen, we got to go. Don't follow up on this, but we all use our phones every day for everything. But I, I think there will be a day, Gene, we don't have phones anymore. And it's like, all we do is talk about our Eventually. phones. There's going to be some device, that an implant, a pin, whatever. We don't need the phones. This will be a relic like the BlackBerry at some point. Um, and that's all I have to say. Gene Munster, can't thank wait. you. Appreciate it. All right, we, neither of us can. We have plugged in all the time. All right, coming in, coming up, we're going to kick off our four big predictions for 24. Do you think you can guess the first prediction for next year? I guess you'll be surprised. That is ahead. Plus, as stocks flirt with records, why is one major group of investors developing a crush on bonds? Maybe the most surprising story you've heard all day. What was my ambition when I was starting out? Survival. I love the word ambition. Ambition is passion. It's a key ingredient of greatness. To me, ambition is being undaunted by the impossible. I'm ambitious for the nation. I'm ambitious for its people. I'm ambitious for my people. My ambition has always been to seek the truth. To learn as much as I possibly could. To make an impact. I believe in dreaming big. I always have. My ambition is to show gratitude. Ambition. (laughs) It's got America written all over it. Ambition really is the foundation of capitalism. I wanted to do great things in this country. My ambition is to do very well in business and to take those profits and recycle back in society to try to make the world a better place. Everything can be a reality. I see ambition everywhere. In many ways, ambition, human ambition, is what drives the world. All right, welcome back to Last Call. It is that time of year again for... I didn't do that. I had nothing to do with that. It's my predictions for 2024. (laughs) Thank you. It is time we make some predictions around big business and economic stories that may define next year or may not. I've been doing this every year for over 10 years. A reminder, these are all done for fun and to stoke discussion and debate. This is not investment advice. There are many pros on CNBC you can listen to and I can listen to and whatever. And while I usually do give predictions... Usually five. This year, if I get it rhymes, I'll go four for 24 this year. We're going to count them down, each one, every day this week. So let's go. My first prediction may surprise some of you. I think that 2024 will be the year that solar stocks flare back up. Sort of. I say sort of because it likely won't be all solar or renewable stocks. There are many bad balance sheets out there. There is way too much debt and still high interest rates. Don't help at all, especially for companies focused on residential solar. And that has, of course, hit many names this year. The Invesco Solar ETF, the ticker TAN, down 28% in a booming stock market. It has been ugly. But that's exactly the point. You want to look into things that have been beaten up. Many wind projects, they're going to struggle. 
But solar continues to grow. In fact, it is likely solar overtakes coal as a percentage of electricity generation globally next year. And parts of Wall Street do remain bullish. For example, first solar median price target, $231, which is more than 30% above the current price, has been named by TD Cowan as one of their top picks for next year and says you've got to focus on utility scale solar, not companies that put solar panels on the roof of your house. These are utility scale generating electricity on a big level. All right, remember, there is a lot of money out there chasing these kinds of projects here and abroad. Some companies may go away, but the ones who survive could thrive next year and beyond. 2024 could be a hot year for some solar companies. Choose your spots wisely, but I believe we could see an outperformance of the overall market next year. Tomorrow, I'll give you my second prediction. 2024. In the meantime, as we have discussed extensively on this fine show, it has been a great year for your money. The Dow's up 13%, the S&P 24, the Nasdaq up 44%. The Dow and the S&P 500 currently less than a percent away from all-time record highs. But as stocks push toward near new records, get this, millennials may be eyeing boring old bonds for their portfolio. That according to public, an online brokerage firm Three and a half million users. For more on this growing trend, we're joined by public co-CEO Leif Abraham. Leif, thank you for coming on set here and schlepping out to the Jersey Wilds. Appreciate it. <laughs> this is shocking to me that millennials, who the oldest is about 40, are interested in, in bonds. What did you find? I think the biggest thing is that, you know, real-time investors learn by doing. And if you look at, like, the last four to five years, right, they, they have been through a lot, right? They literally went through COVID, zero interest policy, and, you know, everything was kind of going up to the right. A lot of speculation happened. Financial crisis, if they're exactly, older. Yep. Exactly. And what happened really is that bonds and just general, like, fixed income as an asset class was really irrelevant for them for a pretty long time. Like, the last time yields were this high is literally pre-iPhone, right? So, like, this is how far it has been, right? And so... Um, when, you, when you then also look at things like the actually like the 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 like the the ability for them to invest in things like bonds, it's like it's a pretty clunky, yeah. outdated, old experience, and so therefore that asset class has not really been touched by a whole generation that entered the market. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to offend them, but I will offend, I guess, their parents, which is <laughs> that you know I, when I think of bonds, I think of boring, I think of safe, I think of retirement, mm-hmm. I think of being. Older. That's to me why I thought this life was so surprising. I think, first off, um, market events for this generation, because people learn by doing, are also these like mass education events. And because yields mm. were suddenly going up, a lot of people were just kind of re-educated around, you know, fixed income. And we've really seen that, you know, we launched a six-month T-bill in like a certain account type, you know, uh, uh, earlier this year. And we realized how people were suddenly getting re-educated about this asset class in general. And just the idea of if I can lend money to the U.S. Uh, to the US government and I get some yield on that. Tax-free, you know, by the way. And like also the tax benefits around it, exactly, all that kind of stuff. And I think that was a little bit of like a, like a certain aha moment for people. And then what we've seen on the other side is also that, you know, this generation has this concept of just like emergency savings. And that's just a sense of that, hey, you have a certain amount of money that you want to have yeah. liquid at all times. You want to have it stashed away somewhere where you feel it's secure. But you still want to get a yield on that. And that's why also things like you know, high-yield savings accounts are very popular right now and so on. So there was this money basically set by side that never really entered the markets 
until there was yield to regain the market. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's not that surprising. We learned from COVID, you go to bed one night, things are, you know, there's some headlines. You wake up the next day, you can't go to school for a year, right? We learned that Mm -hmm. things can change in 24 hours. And I don't think maybe that generation will never forget that. Yeah, and they're, going to, and they're going to invest that way. Yeah. Save a little. Yeah. On the other end, obviously, they've also been through one of the longest bull market cycles maybe in U.S. history, right? And so they also mm. know that, you know, time in the markets uh, can end up, you know, do pretty well for people. And so I think it's really this duality that they're trying to figure out, right? So on the one side, you have certain money that you need to have liquid. You need to have the ability to have access to it for, you know, whatever might happen. Yeah. But on the other end, obviously, you know, they have learned that, you know, time in the markets can do well for them. So, Leif Abraham of Public, three and a half million users. Love this kind of stuff. You, you do it. Let us know. We'll get you back on. Cool. And we won't make you schlep to New Jersey. Leif, thank you very much. <laughs> awesome. I appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks. All right, coming up, there's bad. And then there's Detroit Pistons bad. The NBA team on the brink of one of the most unbelievable sports records ever. And maybe the price that you'll be surprised by. That's next. All right, tonight's RBI is about the Detroit Pistons because the team once dubbed the bad boys are just bad. I mean, really bad. In fact, if the Pistons lose tonight, it would be their 27th loss in a row And that would become the new longest single-season loss streak in NBA history. Right now, at 26 in a row, they're tied with two other teams. The Pistons' last win came nearly two months ago. They've won just two times this season. So that makes the Pistons theoretically on pace to win just five games. That would be an all-time low. Now, if you've been betting against the Pistons, congrats. Based on research from sports betting analyst Ben Fox, if you started with just $100 and you bet on every Detroit opponent and then rolled over your winnings every game, you'd be up more than $310,000 during their losing streak. Now, all this brings up an important question. How much does the owner factor into this? Since Tom Gores bought the Pistons in 2011, they are 358 and 613. That is an NBA-worst 36.9% winning percentage. During that time, Gores' Pistons have only made the postseason twice, and they were swept both times as eight seeds. The last time the Detroit Pistons won a playoff game was 15 years ago, and I I don't think it's a stretch to say that streak is unlikely to end this season. All right, for more on the Motor City Malays, bring in business editor at Axios, Dan Primack. Dan, usually we get you on to talk about M&A and deals Okay, guess what? This is kind of M&A and stuff. Gores buys the team. They were always pretty good for a while. They've been a disaster. Does he play a role in this? He plays a role, but I I don't think we should necessarily blame him. It's worth noting, as of this very moment, the Pistons are beating the Nets, although there's a lot of game to go. Uh, You know, it's one of those things. Owners can definitely screw up a team. They, They can do things. They can maybe help. But generally speaking, their real job is to hire good people who understand, in this case, basketball, and then try to get out of the way. And by all indications, he hired good people. He's got a GM who had a good reputation coming from Oklahoma City. He's got a coach who won Coach of the Year just two seasons ago. And a lot of people going into this year thought they'd be pretty good or at least up and coming. And they've been terrible. You know, you you think of owners and ones who are huge successes. Jerry Jones won three Super Bowls in his first few years. Hasn't been back since. 
good owner, bad owner, or, or does his ownership not necessarily make a difference? Yeah, I don't know. But there's something there's been two other teams, by the way, that have had this level of in-game in-season losing streaks at 26. In fact, both in the last 10 or 15 years. The 76ers lost 28 in a row, but that was over two seasons. They lost a bunch, came back the next year, continued to and lose. And that was intentional. And, and that was intentional. They were trying to lose. The old, the old tank here. I, I think we're talking about it, so maybe it's not all bad. But I don't know. When you have a guy like Gores, who's a rich private equity guy, and, you know, by the way, hard worker, was a janitor, went to Michigan State, so he's got kind of a, a Michigan local connection. I just don't know if this is – and he's, by the way, the third low – he's not the lowest payroll in the NBA – the Jazz and the Pacers actually have lower salaries and obviously better records. I, I think one of the lessons here, you know, Gores and his brother's also a big private equity guy. They each own their own firms. I, I think the lesson here is just because you're good at one thing doesn't mean you'll be good at another thing. And, and sports team ownership is always this odd thing, right? You either get the sports team because you were successful somewhere else and then you buy it or you maybe inherit it. But even if you're good at basketball, you're not necessarily a good owner. Think of Michael Jordan with the Charlotte Hornets. That was a terrible franchise while he owned it. And clearly he knows a lot about basketball. Yeah, and he's been very, Gores, by the way, been very successful and I think he sold a steel company. At one point, he believed he owned the, the San Diego Union Tribune newspaper and even sold that as a profit here. So, uh, you know, it says a lot, I think, about ownership and maybe it doesn't also Dan at the same time what do you what do you make are these things actually in a weird way good for sports because we're talking about the Detroit Pistons I think it's good for sports. I think it's good for kind of equalizing and maybe taking billionaires down down a few notches. I mean, I, I remember being in an event a little over a decade ago with the owner, an owner of a team that had just won or had recently won the NBA championship. And they were still pretty high on themselves. And they were talking about how, well, you know, we had taken our lessons from business and we had applied them here and we kind of worked out a playbook. That team hasn't won another championship since. So I, I, I think that really... You take folks who are very, very successful, obviously very wealthy. You need an enormous amount of money to buy one of these teams. It takes them down a little peg. And is, is it good? Like, it is not good for the NBA to have a team in Detroit be horrific. But you're right. There is a little yeah. bit of interest. Not just because I'm on the segment. I was looking earlier just to see how they were doing out of curiosity. That wouldn't have happened if they were, uh, you know, 500 teams. By the way, since since you started, you said that uh, Detroit was winning. Brooklyn's down a 6-0 uh, run. And now <laughs> Detroit's losing. <laughs> 42 to 38. They, they didn't oh, score so a basket. So they didn't score a basket in our in our entire segment. Dan Primack, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, we're watching. There you go. Coming up, what happens? One of the greatest cash cows ever heads out to pasture. We'll talk about that with movies next. All right, welcome back. Here's a question. Do DC and Marvel have a big-time superhero problem? DC releasing the latest sequel, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, Four years and it flopped, bringing in about $28 million. In fact, of the five lowest DC film openings ever, three were this year. It's not just them. Marvel has seen diminishing returns as well. It's Captain Marvel's sequel to Marvel's, released November, brought in far less than the first installment did back in 2019. DC has said it's planning a reboot for its films moving forward. Will that be enough, or is really the superhero genre becoming a super zero genre? Joining us now is Comscore senior media analyst Paul DeGarabedian. Paul, are we just at superhero fatigue? I think so, Brian. I mean, there's so many superhero properties on the big screen and the small screen that I think that audiences have grown tired of many of them. And also, especially with some of these franchises, they require a lot of homework. 
Like, in other words, to to understand the latest movie of, let's say, a DC movie and particularly an MCU film, you might have to watch five other movies or TV shows to figure that out. Yeah, you're, exa uh, you're exactly right. Yeah. By the way, as a, as, a, as a guy that collected a lot of comic books in the 80s, the, a lot of the, the, the storylines are actually from that period. So I kind of get them. DC, right. I, I watched the Aquaman trailer. I have no idea what the movie was about other than yeah, somebody named Aquaman. That, no, and that's the thing. And it used to be sort of a bulletproof genre, but now it seems that audiences are really gravitating towards different and unique types of movies. If you look at this past weekend, you had two Indian cinema titles and two Japanese cinema titles in the domestic top 10. That's telling us something, but I don't think it's game over for the superhero genre. Yeah. I just think they need to readjust how they are going at these movies thematically, uh, structurally, and all of that. If you look at Joker, Deadpool, Logan, all those movies came from that superhero world, all did very well, but they were unique and different. I saw Godzilla Minus One was sold out of my local theater. That's another great example of a movie that wasn't on many people's radar until it opened, and now it's a huge hit. And it's Japanese cinema at its finest and reinvented a genre. There have been like how many Godzilla movies, and yet people wanted to see this one because it was very unique. And it's that's what the superheroes need to do. Paul, it's subtitled, right? So we have a subtitled Japanese movie, I think, outperforming or performing as well as a big budget DC movie with a big name star. That's a real I think real we're living problem. in a parallel universe like that Star Trek episode where Spock <laughs> had a goatee where everything's turned upside down. And it's just a very interesting dynamic. And I think the audience is telling Hollywood something and they need to listen. And I think they will. It's a big wake up call. Well, is Disney going to listen with Marvel? I mean, how many things are in the pipeline? I have no idea. Yeah, there's a lot there, and I think it's going to be a matter of readjusting. They're going to reboot, in a way, many of these franchises and these brands. I think it's a good idea, but the most powerful people in Hollywood are the audience, and they're telling us something right now with either their presence or absence at the movie theater. I think you're making a really important point, too. The storylines have become so complex, multi-layered. This guy was yeah. in this movie, and then she was in that movie, and now they're in the same movie, but that happened. And if you don't watch the other movie, you don't know what happened in this movie. Paul, it sounds like an episode of Last Call. Paul DeGarabini, really <laughs> <Paul DeGarabini laughs> Comscore, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, Aquaman, underwater. All right, speaking of movies, do you know what happened 50 years ago today? The Exorcist debuted. David! Amen. Bob! The movie's so terrifying that some people reportedly fainted in the movie theater. But The Exorcist did something surprising. It became on, become a big blockbuster hit, banking more than $233 million at the global box office, which doesn't sound like a lot today, but actually that would be north of $1 billion in today's money. The Exorcist debuting 50 years ago today. Wow. Folks, we're live. We'll see you again live tomorrow night. That's it. Shark Tank is next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 